Welcome to Fathering Excellence, where fathers of accomplished people share their parenting insights. This episode, I am excited to be talking with David Feynman. David is the father of three accomplished daughters, Lekka, Chloe, and Emma. Lekka Feynman is a CrossFit champion and fitness, nutrition, and lifestyle coach. Her CrossFit accomplishments in her age group include Northern California Classic Champion, three-time NorCal Masters Champion, and National CrossFit Games top 10 finisher on multiple occasions. Incredible, especially considering that Lekka couldn't do a single pull-up about 12 years ago. Chloe Feynman is a comedian, actor, and impressionist, most well-known for her role as a cast member on Saturday Night Live. Her impressions include Drew Barrymore, Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet, Britney Spears, and many others. You can find her impressions, clips from the SNL performances, and other great content on her Instagram feed at Chloe is Crazy. Emma Feynman is an artist. She's most well known for her painting, largely oil on canvas, but she also works with other mediums, such as charcoal and gold leaf. And she's done some photography and sculpting as well, including at the revered Porthmere Studios in St. Ives. Her many exhibitions include Bloomberg New Contemporaries, the Federation of British Artist Futures show, and two recent solo shows in London. Leka, Chloe, and Emma are fortunate to have David Feynman as their father. In this episode, David and I have a wide-ranging, fun, and interesting conversation. David shares some terrific stories, great parenting advice, and helpful philosophies. We cover a wide variety of topics, including some acting advice that Steve Martin gave to Chloe when she was a teenager, the importance of being a person of your own self-invention, and the Japanese concept of ikigai. As always, if you find this episode helpful, then we'd greatly appreciate it if you could take 60 seconds to provide a rating and a review. Thank you for any help with this. And enjoy this episode with David Feynman. I'm Jonathan V, and this is the Fathering Excellence Podcast. Hey, David, thank you so much for being here today. I am so excited to be talking with you. You have three incredible daughters, Chloe, Lekka, and Emma, correct? Yes. And Lekka, as I understand, 12 years ago, couldn't do a single pull-up and now has been a top 10 CrossFit athlete three times in her age group. I think it's more than that. Is that right? Yeah. She was number one in California. Wow. In her age group for a few years, a number of years. And then I think she was she was number seven in the world. Wow. That's incredible. And she's also, as I understand, a coach and an author. Yes. And she's a fabulous person and a terrific mother to two spectacular daughters. My granddaughters, Kaya and Ruby Dobbs, uh-huh. were just lovely, wonderful young ladies. So what wisdom did you impart to Lekka that led to her becoming such an amazing person? When she, when she was, um, I don't know, maybe two or three, I told her like these four things that you need to know in life. And these four things are really, really important. And the first thing is never give up, never give up, never, ever give up. And it's not me telling you that this comes from Billy Graham. So never give up. And then the second thing I told her was eat when you're hungry. And then number three was 
go to sleep when you're tired. And then the fourth thing I told her, I said, most importantly, do not hang around in a wet bathing suit. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you tell kids different things at different ages. And she was about three years old and her mother and I gotten divorced maybe when she was two. She was real little. And very personally, it was extremely upsetting to me. And and I was, you know, obviously it was difficult all the way around. And so, you know, just try to make the best of time that we spent together. And how was your, how was your relationship with, with Lekka's mom? It it, it was difficult. It was just difficult because of my immaturity and really wasn't ready to get married at all then. And then, you know, wound up with a baby. And so yeah, a lot of that changed. I went and I wound up going to the stock market the fall after I graduated and in Baltimore and then moved to New York with Andrea. And then our relationship just, you know, it just didn't go well. So went to Mexico for a divorce and came back and then she and Leka took off. So after they, I don't know, they went off to Mexico, they did this and that, moved to California and then I was I stayed in New York and I met Ellen there maybe four years after I'd gotten divorced. And what were you doing in New York in the meantime, after Andrea and Lekka went to California and before you met Ellen? In the meantime, I got I had been working on a trading desk on Wall Street and the market was very, very difficult then. And then there was this, you know, they got to post-Vietnam and the oil shock and you could shoot a pistol in a brokerage office and no one would move. I hmm. in fact one day I was Walking at an exchange place near Wall Street at um, Broad and Exchange Place, saw so a guy jump off a building. Oh my it, goodness! It was, yeah, and he landed on the roof of a car next to me. It's like it was really difficult, and and so I was, uh, and I, and so I was miserable, overwhelmed, and confused by the politics of the time. I mean, it was difficult, you know, when Kennedy got shot in '63. It was very, very difficult. And that November, it, it sort of did something to me anyway in terms of I was always pretty sarcastic and negative, and that just really iced it. So I just had a hard time in my early 20s. And how did you meet Ellen? I'd gone to graduate school in psychology at the New School for Social Research and proceeded through my master's degree into my doctoral studies and then decided that wasn't going to work. So Ellen and I, who I'd met four years before that, and she was a student at Parsons School of Design, where the graduate faculty of the school that I was at was located there. And I remember it was December, around December 12th or 13th of 1972. It was around 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. And I'd been studying for two, three weeks. Mm-hmm. Hadn't had really a conversation with anybody. And I was went upstairs to leave and I bumped into two buddies of mine and we were talking. And then through the doorway came this just lovely, beautiful person. And it was Ellen. And they said, wow, did you see her? And, yeah. Wow. And I ran downstairs. She went down to the library and I ran back down to the library and she was going through the turnstile and I was going the other way. And I, I couldn't form a sentence. And I said to her, <laughs> I said to her, eat. And she looked at me like I was completely nuts. And, and she, she said, no. And, I said, and then I got myself together. I said, look, I'd really love to go out to dinner with you, you know, tonight because it's 5.30. We could do that. I said, no, 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 no. I've not had good luck on blind dates or things like this. If you call me in two weeks, maybe I'll go out with you. So I called her and she agreed to go out with me. And then 
I went over to this uh, haircutting salon on St. Mark's Place in Greenwich Village, and I got this haircut. It was like a Rod Stewart haircut where my top of my head was sort of like a short tennis ball, like it looked like a tennis ball, and then <laughs> had these wings that went out to the side. Nice. And then I, I went to a surplus store, and I bought a pair of wool Navy pants to match my orange, these blue wool pants like you wear in the Navy with 13 buttons on the front to match my orange cowboy boots. And then I bought a rubber raincoat. So I look like this cartoon character, Tintin, with these arms that sort of stretched out, <laughs> rubber raincoat. But I had my cowboy shirt. And how, how did she react when she saw that? She did not know me when I showed up. She looked at me like she'd never seen me before. <laughs> and she was actually... I mean, I saw fear, and but somehow, I don't know, we went out to dinner, I was very nervous, we went to Chinatown with a very good friend of mine, my friend Ned Pockner, who lives out here, we've been friends for almost 50, over 50 years, and his wife Beverly, they were dating at the time, we went to a Chinese restaurant, I was very nervous, Alan ordered a gin and ginger ale, and I thought that, God, that it's, it's going to kill her, and so I drank it, and then I think I ate most of her food on her <laughs> but somehow, you know, she agreed to go out with me again. How long were the two of you together before you had Chloe and Emma? We must have been together 15, 16 years before we had children. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's nice. Did you find that that helped you as parents down the road to have had that? I think it did. Uh, I think it did. I mean, uh, the first two years, were, I looked at that as the time to get past bickering. Mm. So, you know, to, you know, you complain about cooking or this or that. So it was all great, but um, I really missed Lekka and really needed to go to California, which we did. And then- And where in California were you? Across the bay from San Francisco. We settled in Berkeley. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we lived there for about eight years. Chloe was born there. And Lekka was about how old when you moved there? Uh, nine, uh -huh. I want to say. And she lived on a commune up in Albion, which is near Mendocino. So it's north maybe 120 some miles north of San Francisco on the coast. Really beautiful, beautiful place. So I, I think there's a lot of different flavors of communes. What did that look like? There was about a 170 acre, it was a ranch. I guess it had been an, you know, like a, not a ranch really, but more like fruit trees. So that there were maybe 16 people or 30 people that lived there. Well, Luna, Andrea changed her name to Luna. She lived in a yurt. And then some people lived in little cabins that they built, and then they built a school there. Uh -huh. And so it had like a ranch house that was sort of halfway fallen apart with a porch that overlooked the apple orchard, and there were a bunch of goats there. People ate a lot of uh, goat cheese, and there was you know, like a blue haze of marijuana smoke very often. And But I, I loved going up there just to see my daughter. I'm sure. Just, you know, her joy and and being with her, it's amazing. She and I, I mean, she's, I don't know, 53, 54 years old now. And I don't, we've never had a, an ill word between us. There may be times, I'm sure there were times where I was a huge disappointment to her on many, many levels, but it never came up. Hmm. And we've just had a very warm, I mean, she knows how much I care for her. We'd do anything for her. And then you have Emma, who is a painter. Countless exhibitions, from what I could tell, including Bloomberg New Contemporaries, the Federation of British Artists Futures show, recently two solo shows, I think last year in London. 
Yeah, she has, she's in a show now in Denmark, in fact, and she's just complete. And so Emma's the middle one. Chloe is, uh, Lek is um, the first child of Ellen and of our union, but Emma's the youngest. So Emma, a few years ago, graduated from the Royal College of Art. Wow, she's done so much. Oh, yeah. Now she's, I mean, all three, the most amazing thing is just the strength of their as people. So when Emma was in high school, she was kind of having a difficult time of it. And she just felt that she, in terms of her art or doing anything in art, it's sort of like she kind of lost it, I guess. It just it sort of drifted away or something. And maybe it was the high school, maybe it was, you know, the other, the kids there or whatever, her feeling, she just, how she felt about herself, her self-image, whatever it was. And so when she was in her, I think it was her junior year, she went off to a school called Oxbow, which is here in Napa, California. And it's, it's a high school that's all art. And it was fabulous. It was all art. And then I think math or other stuff like that that was done by correspondence. So that's all Emma did then. And it, it just really nailed it for her in terms of doing what she did in art. And then she got a scholarship to the Maryland Institute of Art in Baltimore. And so one year, and this was her junior year, she spent about five months backpacking across the India-Tibet border. And then she spent about four or five months in Florence. So she was very adventurous. Before she went to India, she did a thing with Knowles up the Amazon River for months. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you, you learn to deal with difficult personalities because some of the kids whose parents send them on those things do it because, you know, they think that uh, little Billy needs to toughen up or something, uh -huh. or whatever. That wasn't Emma's case. So, yeah, she's she was just fierce that way. And so she got a tremendous amount out of, out of that time, did a fabulous journal, and it just heightened her sensitivity to other people, other cultures, and, and people that... Uh, or in a struggle. Hmm. And so she's quite remarkable that way. And and Chloe and Lekka, in their own way, have those same characteristics that uh, it's just who they are as people. Were there any values that, as a father, were important to you to instill in your daughters? To me, the thing was, you got to be a person of your own self-invention. That and what that means, and because, you know, we're a family of artists, really. Ellen is an artist, and Lekka certainly is. She was a designer in her education. You have to invent yourself, not only who you are as a person, but you have to invent yourself every day. If you're a painter, like my wife, it's like every day she has to go and confront that canvas, whether it's a blank canvas or a work in process. Emma, same thing. Lekka, it's the same thing to maintain her practice because, you know, she does yoga, she's a fabulous cook, she's a writer, you know, all the things she does, she, you know, the meditation, the journaling, everything that she does is around, you know, furthering her purpose. I mean, the Japanese have, you know, the word, are you familiar with the word ikigai or the concept of ikigai? I am not, no. And I did take a little Japanese, but that word is unfamiliar. How, how do you spell it? I-K-I-G-A-I, -I -I, and it's a concept that really has to do with purpose, but it's basically overlapping Venn diagrams that what it gets aligned is that what you really, really love in life, and then what you're also passionate about, but that what you feel that, and that you're really, really good at, 
and it's something that the world really, really needs, and that the world is there. You know that you can get paid for it. It's it's taking the word purpose and ex, you know just exploding it in a multi-dimensional way. Mm. And is it similar in some ways to the word vocation? It's vocation, but also in in terms of what the world needs and aligning that with what you love. I mean, all these things have to all these these Venn diagrams have to overlap. I'll send you a I found a diagram of it that somebody sent me. I'll text it to you. That'd be great. Some, when we get off this. Yeah, thank you. So, but that, that, that's a purpose is a big one because I struggled with this myself. You know, so my thing for the for my children was just be yourself, which is to me, it's like the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing because you don't have the internal vocabulary or dialogue in terms of really understanding nuances of what you're feeling or what the gradient steps of frustration you know are that lead into being really frustrated or really getting angry and then really exploding or getting emotional. And so having a sense of purpose where you're really centered as a person. How would you describe what that looks like within the context of Chloe's life? So Chloe in particular, what she does is extremely difficult. And she went through walls to get to where she is now being on Saturday Night Live. I mean, she, I remember when she was, she must have been four, four or five, five years old at the eldest. And she had, her best friend was Erica Hellerstein. And Erica's father, Mark, and I did a company together about 20 years ago. But Erica and Chloe were very close. And Eric was a fabulous athlete, really good soccer player. Father's a terrific athlete. And so we're on the soccer field and Chloe's standing there and she's twirling her hair and looking off in space. And I said to her, Chloe, what's going on? Do you want to play soccer or something else? She said, I, I wanted, I wanted to uh, be a dancer actress. I said, then that's it with soccer. And that was it. And then I remember a few years later, we were out with some people in person asked Chloe, the guy said, Chloe, do you play soccer? No, I'm a dancer slash actress. Ah, that's cool. So she was really confident in that. Yeah. So Chloe's identity in terms of that, that was clear. And she did this from, she was teeny, teeny, teeny. And then when she was in high school, when she was 14, she went for a summer thing down at UCLA. It was cat, you know, acting for the camera or something like that. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize this was like so inappropriate to send her there because the other girls there were, you know, later in high school and a lot of them had been on TV and they were, you know, these model types and here she's 14 year old. And I just think it, it just scared the hell out of her. Anyway, on the way down there, we stopped to visit Lekka. At the time, Lekka was married to Rusty uh, Dobbs, and Rusty's Steve Martin is his uncle. No way! Wow. So we stopped. We stopped at Steve's house in Montecito to visit the Dobbs's. Rusty had lovely, lovely parents and and his sister, and and we went to lunch and with Steve and. It came up, Chloe, you know, was going to UCLA to this acting thing. And what, is there any any advice, you know, for Chloe relative to acting? And Steve said to her, he said, if the part is dog, don't think cat. Hmm. Say bow wow. 
not meow. <laughs> to that effect. And then don't try to make it something it's not. And you know, it's, it, but the funny thing is, it's things like that in life that you hear snippets of stuff and one place, another place, like, you know, the word ikigai or another Japanese word ma, which pertains to silences, but silent space in Japanese art or silence in Japanese theater. But it's really where does meaning come from? It comes from a state of being, you know, just slowing down to just be. And so, you know, these are been kind of the messages with. So with Chloe, the message was just be yourself. And you were always supportive, regardless of what it was that she wanted to do. Always totally supportive of her. Anything that she wanted. And crazy things. When she was really little and her sister Emma was a baby and it was too much, you know, for her mother for, to have all these two screaming kids in the house, I would take Chloe with me. And one time we went to Target, Chloe wanted to buy a, uh, a tutu. And we got this tutu and it was like eight sizes too small, but she had to have it. It was like a harlequin color. It was black and white and this and that. And, you know, I could have gotten into a thing where it could be a temper tantrum or something. It's like, I realized that anything that she ever wanted was so minimal compared to the overall. Yeah. So I indulged her. I got the thing. We went home and Ellen just was rolling in laughter. Chloe's squeezing herself into this thing. <laughs> and, you know, I would take her with me to do improvisational comedy when she was three years old. So did you yourself do improv? Yeah. Yeah. There's some fabulous improvisers here. Jim Crana, who was just a genius, passed away a few years ago. He'd been in this in the committee, which performed here in the 60s. And um, Howard Hessman was in that group and Rob Reiner and wow. um, John Baez's sister, Mimi Farina, was in that group and people who were on Cheers. I mean, a lot of tremendous, tremendous talent came out of there. So what Krana did was it was an open workshop. And so I, I started doing that maybe in 19. 81, 82, when, you know, Chloe was little, I would take her with me. And I remember there was one instance where she was up on the stage with uh, Bill Bonham, who's phenomenally funny. And it turned out when we do this thing on Saturday, she'd take a number and they call it like all number fours get up there. So Chloe was one of the numbers and she's up on the stage with these guys and she's like three years old standing stage left down front. And I remember Bonham, it just infuriated him to see this kid there taking up attention units from him. And he <laughs> picked her up and moved her forward. And she started crying, which made it even funnier. And I swooped her up and took her downstairs to get her a cookie. And then I said, come on, you know, have your cookie and we'll go home. And she said, no, no, I want my scene. I want to finish my scene. Wow. Yeah. And so you know, I took her back upstairs and she has... It's, again, amazing force of will, amazing force of will. And did she continue her interest in the stage as she went into high school? When she was in high school, after her experience in Los Angeles, she really buckled down. She was kind of a mediocre student because I guess she just wasn't that. She became really serious and she became really serious in theater. And one day she called me and she said, Daddy, I want to put on the Vagina Monologues. And I said, well, you need to call Eve Ensler's publisher or whatever to get rights to it. You can't just do that. And she called and they said, you cannot do the Vagina Monologues. And for some reason, either it was being performed somewhere in the area or they're just not going to give it to a high school kid to perform, whatever it was. So she calls me. She says, oh, they won't let me do it. She's crying and crying. You got to do it. You got to. 
hey, Ford, are you going to do it? I said, I'm not going to do it because they'll sue me. I said, look, come up with some other idea. So she, came, Chloe came up with the idea to do a play called Volva, La Revolution. And they made a big red V and they did skits. And it was on the along the theme of vagina monologues, but it wasn't. And she went to the principal of the high school and the principal of the high school said, Chloe, you know, you've made a wonderful name for yourself here in the drama department. Why are you going to ruin it for yourself? And Chloe said, Do you, are you familiar with this play? She said, I've heard of it. She said, have you seen it? She said, no. She said, have you read it? No, but I'm not, you cannot, you cannot do it at the theater here. So Chloe rented the hall above the police station here in Piedmont, where we live. And she and her friends put on a play. They raised $3,500, which they donated to a woman's shelter. And they raised that like in two nights that they did the play. And I remember one of the funniest scenes of all that they made up. The question in the scene was, if your vagina could talk, what would it say? And this little high school girl goes out there and stands in front of the stage with the lights on her face. And she says, where's Bob? (laughs) 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 And meanwhile, my mother is there. My mother was still alive and she's doing her folding the napkin thing and biting on it. And a dear friend of mine, Jerry Darty, who's since passed, was there. He said to me, I look like I'd come back from a camping trip. My hair was completely, I mean, I just folded in the chair seeing my 15-year-old daughter fake orgasms in this play. You know, it's like the die was cast. The key about Chloe and Lekka and Emma, these are fearless, absolutely fearless people. And they're going to do as they do. It's like Emma is going to be, a, she is a major force in the room. She's going to be loud. She's going to be funny. She's, you know, that's who she is. Chloe is, again, can be quiet in a room, but she's recording and observing. And then all of a sudden, whoa, where did that come from? I mean, it's just, and so I, what I celebrate is the uniqueness of what came out of this family of such strong personalities Yeah. And and their career choices suggest that as well. Right. I mean, it takes a bold person to pursue a career in painting or acting or CrossFit. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. And for Emma, I mean, with all of them, I I have what I consider a very, very intimate relationships in the sense of just in terms of being just to be with them. And Chloe knows, I think she got this whole notion of being unfiltered from me. And well, no, she was nine years old. I, she ran, went up to somebody who was smoking in a restaurant and went, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, you know, I mean, she's just she's fearless. And so the net result was when it came time to go to college for Chloe, she wanted to go. She said, I'm going to go to NYU. I want to go to Tisch. And there was a big fight in the house over it. You need it because there are months you got to apply to other schools. You got to do this. You got to end the high school counselor. So anyway, she applied there for early admission and she got in. She won Studio Actor Award at Tisch. Had a very successful experience there, but nobody picked her up on graduation. And then she moved to Los Angeles and she was in Los Angeles maybe four or five years and got nothing, absolutely nothing. She'd go on auditions, zero. She'd go on to try and get a commercial. It's either you're too short, you're too fat, you're too blonde, you're not blonde enough, you're too waspy, you're not, you're this, you're that. Zero. And was she and, doing, she just, was this before or after she started with Groundlings and Upright Citizens Brigade? Well, what happened there was 
the idea of training and improv came a couple ways. Tish had a program in LA and somebody there had said to her, you know, for it would be good if you did improv for auditioning skills. And I said to her, I said, look, you have an absolutely exquisite face and you're brilliant. You're more brilliant than you give yourself credit for or that you acknowledge and you don't, you don't even know the effect that you have in the world on people. You just don't know it. But I'm telling you, people cannot take their eyes off of you when you're on the stage. And there's some relationship between you and a camera that is totally unique. I'm saying it, you won't believe it. I'm your father, but this is true. And you're telling her this when she's in college or, or was this earlier? I told her this after college and during college when she was extremely insecure, I told her over and over again, don't let anybody question your talent. These are choices. So it's like in life, you pick up sayings from people you meet and sometimes you meet like important people. And so a neighbor across the street from us was Michael Murphy, who's a dear friend at the time. And later, I mean, we wrote scripts together and he was in Woody a bunch of Woody Allen's films. Uh-huh. Wow. He was the lead in a whole bunch of Robert Altman films. And we did a um a script together that wound up with Sidney Pollock. And when we were talking about it with Pollock, Pollock said, there's no right or wrong in these things. It's a matter of aesthetic choices. And I took that really seriously and I would repeat that over and over to Chloe. And that your choices matter because they're yours. And it's in that theme of being a person of self-invention. So when she got out of Trish and she was getting nothing, and and by the way, not in a relationship, but very, very diligent and focused. So she did Upright Citizens Brigade. She did different programs there, repeated them many times. And the same thing with Growlings. And Growlings is, it's rough. I mean, you can do the basic stuff. And then when you want to do more advanced stuff, it's by election, mm. by the teachers. And then to get into writing lab, you have, it's like a two-year wait before you can, can even get into it. Is that right? Wow. And then the next step there is to be in Sunday Company. She got into Sunday Company and she got hired on SNL. Huge accomplishment. Yeah. She was a person of self-invention and that was pure Chloe and amazing was through Instagram. Just taking her cell phone and doing these teeny little selfies. The first ones maybe just 15, 20 seconds. So the beautiful thing about Instagram is you're la- it's 59 seconds to, to do something. And I looked at what she's done over the past I guess it's almost six years now. And in that time period, she did about an average of 80 of these little pieces under her name on Instagram, which is Chloe is crazy. That's the name she uses on Instagram. She signed up for it the first year. Maybe she got to 5,000 names. The funny thing is that Emma was a very early adapter in Instagram and right in the beginning of it and very quickly got up to over 50,000 followers. So was she posting her artwork on Instagram? She was posting artwork. She was posting food things. They were posting all kinds of stuff. We have a a art studio in the house and she had some friends who were making uh, leather bags and we set up the studio to look like it was a little factory for them. Mm. They raised two and a half million dollars on a GoFundMe and now they have a factory in Florence making handbags. Wow. I mean, just creating stuff absolutely out of nothing. And so what Chloe did was just doing 
just these little crazy things of herself and then began to do impressions. She did Melania Trump's White House Christmas a few years ago, or she did, she's done, I mean, she's done amazingly wonderful ones. A more recent one that was amazing is with Drew Barrymore. Uh, the Drew Barrymore one is terrific. Drew Barrymore has over 13 million followers and posted Chloe. Oh, wow on her feed. Now, what's interesting to me, because I love numbers, when Chloe got hired by SNL a year ago, she had 60,000 followers. And I think today she has about 320,000 followers. Oh my goodness, went up fivefold. It went up over fivefold, but three to three, four days ago, when she did, she picked up close to 40,000 followers in about two and a half days off of the Drew Barrymore posting. Wow. And the amazing thing is the people who follow her, they're major, major names. So it's interesting to me because the media business is all about numbers and eyeballs. But the sophistication that these kids have about social media is just beyond, beyond. Mm. I remember, I remember Chloe was saying to me, you know, Lauren Michaels had asked her, you know, what's, what's with this Instagram thing? And she said, oh, I, I took down everything that was really suggestive or vulgar. My parents were all over me to do this. No, no. What's your target audience? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she said, well, I started doing it because I was doing stand up and I just wanted people to come to my shows. But, you know, she's got this great group. It's, it's like this collaborative network in addition to the people at SNL, but Charles Rogers, who's brilliant, Casey Brown, who was her, you know, they did a fake Zoom wedding. She and Casey do incredible stuff together, you know, or Bridie Elliott, or, I mean, it's just a, a whole number of people. And then, you know, the people that follow her just wanted to know her, they're the major names in film and in new media. And it just, it's out of nowhere. That's great. She's creating and making a name for herself instead of waiting for somebody else. And that's the thing about about self-invention. And I told the kids when they were in high school, I didn't say this to Lekka because I didn't need to, but I said it to Chloe and Emma. I, and you're not in high school here because you're going to go to law school. You know, we are artists and it's self-invention. And I got the term self-invention from a friend of mine who had financed a couple companies with Greg Swenson, who's a professional guitarist. And he himself said, you know, that it's really a matter of self-invention, of becoming who you are. And I've thought about that a lot over the years. And so it's an honor to do this interview with you because, uh, Jonathan, it's given me time to really think about, you know, what are, the, what are the important messages? And the fundamentally most important thing to me is don't get in the child's way. And anything that you can possibly do to further their spirit, do that. Well, listening to you talk, it's it seems that you did a lot of that. You seem to have a very encouraging and supportive approach to parenting. I my belief very strongly is people need to experience life for themselves and come to their own conclusions about what is true for them. And because I, I feel that, that certainly with these three amazing children of mine and my grandchildren, that they're basically really good sound people mm. and the example with chloe would would is a continuing one of you know collaborate just being feeling collaboratively like i'm a, a stakeholder in her success mm. a stakeholder in her being funny and so it's it's just to be supportive and know that at some point things are going to work out it's the same thing with emma so emma 
She suffered through a very long period of being alone. She has a boyfriend. They've been together for many years, but they've actually been apart the whole time she was in India, the whole time she was in, you know, when she was on the East Coast at Micah. And then now they're together in London, but um, just to go through really difficult times of, of aloneness mm. and just to be really encouraging with them on that or to be really encouraging for Lekka when, you know, her, you know, had a disruption in, in her marriage and yet and and to really be amazed like in her case by what an amazing mother that she is to make sure that you know her children have a relationship with their father you know like to bend over backwards for that because she knows how important it is i, I guess man there, these are things i don't even have to talk to her about it's just obvious thing a common theme among fathers of accomplished people seems to be encouragement this might be a, a difficult question to answer, but what does that mean within the context of the relationship that you have with your daughters? I think it's like the Japanese concept of ma, M-A. It's in the silence. It's like, you know, the, the clay pot is defined by the hollow part of the pot. It's an abstract concept, but it's just in a silent communication of really heartfelt affinity. Oh, that's nice. I, I like that. And it seems like you tried to be there to be present with your daughters so that they could feel that heartfelt affinity. Yeah. With Lekka, whether she was, you know, on a horse or if she's competing, you know, she just knows that that I'm there, I'm interested. And that comes back to this thing of pride. If you're a parent, what can you do for a child so that ultimately that child can make themselves feel proud and proud in relationship to you? You know, one of the things that was huge for me emotionally when I was about five or four, I was in a nursery school and it was parents day and everybody's parents were there and my mother and my new father were there. And I just was like bursting with pride, just absolutely bursting with pride over it. And then I, I remember reading in one of the one of Steve Martin's books he was writing about when he was maybe in you know in elementary school and they had a tumbling contest and how proud he felt you know doing this tumbling that he could tumble and that his father was there in the room and so those moments it's it's like what happens in a nanosecond you carry stuff like that through your whole entire life and you don't even realize how it informs you unconsciously or in ways that you don't even know but it's there and so for me i just my kids they really need to know on a moment to moment basis how it just fills me there's nothing like it i mean it's it's from a child it's amazing and and then to get it from your own parent which i got very you know i can count it on two fingers and one hand mm. it sounds like you didn't have the best of childhoods what what was your childhood like i never met my father till i was 27 years old wow it was difficult for my mother although because she had gotten divorced when i was about 2 same time when I when Lekka's mom and I got divorced, and it, that played very hard on me. And she never remarried. Oh, she did. No, she she remarried a number of times. But I was raised by Jerome Feynman, who's a wonderful, brilliant pediatrician in Baltimore, and and they they were deeply in love. My biological father was also a physician, and he went off to the war as a physician in Constantinople, which is now, you know, Istanbul, right. Turkey. And he came back with syphilis. So anyway, my mother was just 
heartbroken over it. Oh. And he was cold to her. And, and my mother basically fell apart over it. So oh. she was given electric shock treatment. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we went back to Baltimore and for I don't know, maybe two, three weeks, she would go to Johns Hopkins and they, they gave her electric shock treatment. Wow. And so I, and I just felt like I lost my mother. I mean, she was a, just very, totally different. How old were you then? Two and a half. Yeah, I was about two and a half years old. I could, my memory goes back to when I was like about maybe one, one and a half because of you know the emotional upset going on. And these are the kind of things that inform me, I think, as a in terms of parenting, in terms of my own relationship. Then I didn't meet my biological father till I was 27. Mm. And it was very bittersweet because I felt this incredible connection and love with him, but also a huge deficit of never not having the benefit of having grown up with him. But so these kinds of things, you know, you get betrayed or things don't work out kind of the way you hope. And so in terms of your own children, you just, you try to do better. Yeah. That seems pretty common that we'll take some things from our upbringing and purposefully avoid doing some others. Are, are there some things in particular that stand out to you that were things that you try to adopt and repurpose in your own parenting and things that you specifically stayed away from? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, you know, in, in these kinds of events in a, in a life, they're disrupt, disruptive. It forces personal work to, you know, what did I do wrong? What did they do wrong? And, and deal with upset or anger that's related to it. And so for me, the key thing with my daughters has been for them to be people of their own invention, of their own self-invention is very, very important to me. And with Lekka, it was almost unspoken, but her courage came just in the fact of you know, had being moved around so much and just having to care for herself in certain ways. Like she was always had a neat little suitcase or she always had a little snack or she, you know, she just, these little basics. She's always had that right. And then when she got into her early teens, I remember I, I had no money. I had very little money. I did get my, and got her a horse and she rode that horse in a thing. They have a thing here called the Tevis Cup. They're long races. They're 50-mile, 100-mile races in the Sierras. And we went up to one of them. And her horse was uh, basically a cow pony. You know, people would do these races on Arabians that are really geared for that. And you go a certain distance, and there's a veterinarian there, and they take the horse's pulse. I remember getting up at know, 5 o'clock in the morning, and she was just totally committed to doing this. And she was so nervous, she vomited. Her friend Larry Shea was there, a woman who was involved with her horse with her, and Larry, you know, comforted her. And she took and she completed this and you know, and it was great. It was just great. That is incredible. And and she was how old then? I I don't I don't know, maybe maybe 10, 11, wow. 12. She was just young. We touched on uh SNL earlier. What was that like for you? The moment that you hear Live from New York, it's Saturday night, and your daughter, Chloe, is on the show. The big thing is when they brought her onto the show, we were in Venice, Emma and Ellen and I, and Emma's friend, Megan, was, was like a daughter, and we got the news that she'd been hired, and Emma just burst into tears when we were in this large square, and people were staring at us. That was amazing. What happened when... Chloe, when Chloe came up on SNL, it was bittersweet because our internet in our house isn't so great. The, yeah, so anyway, to go to turn the thing on and, and then 
Ellen and I are, and I'm saying, well, I guess we don't deserve to see Chloe on <laughs> SNL because because I, I was too. I, I've been in this fight with Comcast or Xfinity over this thing, and they never got it right, and I didn't pay the money, and I didn't put the, the and so we don't deserve to see <laughs> SNL. You know, it's just. But here's the thing about SNL is really, really difficult. It's I, I would put it right up there as one of the hardest jobs in the world to get, number one. Number two, the week that people go through there, you know, because on Tuesday night, they're up all night till three, four, five o'clock in the morning writing. And then, then they have to pitch stuff. So there's all the stress of pitching with everybody in the room. And then Friday, you know, maybe they'll start doing videos or start doing stuff. And then on Saturday, there's a run-through show, like it's a eight or eight thirty in the evening, and then in New York, and then at eleven o'clock uh, New York time, they do the live show. So, but you don't know if your stuff's going to be included or not, uh. and or for that matter, you don't know if you're going to be fired or what or what or this or that. So it's very difficult, you know, the stress, the stress on sleep, and it's but Chloe's. You know, it's just like this is her game, and I think this second year, I'm really excited about it. I think it'll, you know, it'll be a lot. I hope it'll be easier for her, and I can just see her numbers are expanding, and I think she's bringing joy to so many people that she's at a level now which gives me just tremendous, unbelievable sense of grace inside to know that she's playing her game at the highest possible level, and. People really love what she does, and it makes a difference in their lives. So Chloe, she makes people really, really, really laugh. Chloe is crazy. The Drew Barrymore, Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet. Oh my, uh, my wife and I have been bent over in hysterics watching her material. <laughs> There's more to come. I mean, the people come back and watch her stuff over and over and over and over again. And I know that what she put into making her Instagram little pieces that are 59 seconds where she'll go through a thing 30, 40, 50, 60 times to get it right. So she knows what she looks like on a camera and she has a standard. And so it's like, to me, she's hopefully more and more bulletproof as a person to not be shaken from her viewpoint, yeah. which is really what it's about. And it's the same thing for Emma, that as she matures as an artist and the connection between her eye and her heart and her hand and what goes onto a canvas or what is there in sculpture or what's there, you know, as a piece of furniture or anything that she does, that there's the authenticity of that. And that Lekka is a statement that, you know, it's a full statement of a fully actualized, fully beautifully functioning person who can ride the roller coaster of the moment-to-moment -moment emotional stuff that we go through in the course of our lives where our spirit is struggling with interacting with this material universe and instead of being squashed suppressed or succumb to it to wind up that they can function at a level of enthusiasm where they can make a game and they make the game and they know they're making a game and that they're the source of that game and they're not a piece in somebody else's game because the worst possible position in life to be is to think that you're a player, but you're really a piece in somebody else's game. And people get sucked into power and ego and 
you know, these buttons of self-importance around that that are so incredibly toxic. I mean, they're Maya, they're an illusion. And so, you know, if a person can become enlightened, you know, when they're in their late 20s or early 30s or in their 50s, then to have to wait till you're 77 years old, how great is that? Yeah. Yeah. Lika has been an inspiration to me. Getting to that level of fitness at the age she started is incredible. It, it gives me hope. Oh, it's insane. Hadn't done, couldn't do a pull-up 10 years ago. I've seen her do, you know, like five sets of 20. Wow. <laughs> or some insane number. It's like, whoa. The key thing is to, is to get, just get better. And, you know, she's, she was doing yoga from the time she's been 15. And, you know, it comes back to eat when you're hungry, go to bed when you're tired, and don't give up. So I have just a couple of closing questions. First, in addition to what you've already shared, is there any additional parenting advice that you would offer to fathers in general or fathers who have kids with similar career aspirations to your own? It's just to go for it. You know, just go for it. And like my granddaughter, Kaya, she, she's 21, 22, you know, she wants to get a car and it's a really, really hard thing. And she wants to do it herself. And there's part of me, it's like, why waste your money on a wasting asset? Oh my God. And geez, please don't sell your, don't do your savings. I mean, figure out some way to do it. You know, I told told her, you know, all of my thoughts about it, but ultimately it boils down to, you know, you got to do in life what, what, what sparks you and then live with the consequences of it. And for Emma, it's painting and and Chloe, it's her comedy and Lekka. It can be in simple things like preparing a week's meal uh-huh. on a Sunday or doing a meditation thing for an hour on Zoom for people mm. or interacting with her clients in terms of, of their lives and coaching them or, you know, who she is in her relationship with Shannon. I think the route to insanity is maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe this, maybe that, maybe, maybe, oh, maybe. Maybe, maybe, no, make a choice. And if you feel like crap, get moving, be active, and it'll lift your spirits. That is great advice. So lastly, what are three words that you think your girls would use to describe your parenting style? Chloe's, her words would be unfiltered and supportive. Mm. And I think the word that would come through the three of them that I think the other they'd all agree on that, and that the word fierce would be in there. Fierce. Yeah, fierce, you know, like fearless. Yeah, like what I said to Lekka when she was three years old, never give up. I got you. Fearless. Yes. David, that's all of the questions I had. Is there anything else that comes to mind that you think might be helpful for the listeners? Um, well, you know, in thinking about what we just talked about in our conversation, you know, it could seem like, well, it's pretty loosey goosey. You know, you have a sense of what your purpose is. And then here's this father that says, oh, go for it, go for it. But I know that with my daughter, Lekka, there was a time when she said to me, you know, dad, you're so judgmental. And I said, yeah, guess what? I'm your father. I get to be judgmental. And it's important. You know, there's things that, you know, that I need to tell you as your father. And it's the same thing with Chloe. She once said when she was in middle school or something, she said, God, I don't feel like there's any standards. I said, oh, you believe me, the standards are there. You just may not see them coming in. And it's not that, that I have a hidden standard. I'm right out front with it. And it comes from my mother, really. Because on the one hand, it goes without saying that there's 100% support and devotion from me 
which my children, all of them, I think they definitely know it's there, but there's also checks and balances. So if something doesn't feel right with me, or I feel that a choice of theirs isn't really in alignment with, uh, I mean, the word for it would be an arc, I guess, of, of what's a good fit, you know, in terms of, of a higher standard, then I'm going to say something. And, and this, it, goes, it goes to the, even to the level for a young girl, you know, the, to be noticed, it's not necessary to be running around in skimpy clothes or being vulgar or doing things for shock value. I mean, you know, in Chloe's early stuff in Instagram, I was critical that it was approaching that line. So, you know, it's I'm judgmental, but it's not in a, I don't think in a critical way. It's more I was talking to my daughter, Lekka, about this, and she felt like I'm critical, more like a critique in an art class, Mm -hmm. you know, voicing something that maybe you just weren't aware of in the work. But there's another side to this, too. I mean, not to make it overly complicated, but I am funny. And the problem with being funny is it can be difficult for a child because uh, humor, you know, there's nuances and there's also judgment that's in that. And so, uh, you know, I've tried to be sensitive to, you know, on the one hand, you know, this concept of no filters, but on the other hand, being sensitive to human beings, not not being vicious in humor, not using humor in a bullying way, but using it really to bring joy into people's lives. And and so all three of my daughters have a wonderful sense of humor. And, you know, it's, it's sort of it's a complete package. And, you know, there's no there's no absolutes in terms of something being 100 percent right or 100 percent wrong. Well, I have really enjoyed Chloe's sense of humor. It's been therapeutic during the stress of quarantine to have just to just to have a good laugh. So I think what Chloe is doing through her Instagram feed and on Saturday Night Live is both hugely entertaining and valuable. It's important. It really it really helps the many of us who are struggling, you know, during this difficult time. People are really appreciative of it. She was on the Today Show three four minute piece, and it was just wonderful. She was poised and. And totally topical. And so she's doing her part. Uh, Lekka does a free Zoom yoga thing on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. It's just wonderful to give people that peace of mind. And, and Emma puts her artwork in auctions where the proceeds go to, to victims of COVID or, or people who are um, victims of racism. So that, you know, they all contribute in their way. And, and that's really what's most important. It's what you put in. It's not what you try to take out. Yeah, that's so true. Well, you must be a proud dad. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, Jonathan, and um, really appreciative of this opportunity. Well, David, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It was a pleasure talking with you. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you're a gentleman. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jonathan. And onward and upward. Thank you for listening, and thanks to David Feynman. As mentioned in the introduction, we would greatly appreciate it if you could help sustain the podcast by leaving a rating and even a brief review. It's particularly helpful if you can do this on the Apple Podcast app. You can also help sustain the podcast by telling a friend about it, subscribing, and following us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. And feel free to reach out to us directly at info, I-N-F-O, 
at fatheringexcellence.com or use the contact form on our website. Most importantly, remember to spend some time today with your child. It goes by in the blink of an eye. Thank you.